Welcome to the Reticle Up Podcast, where I, Three Gun Kenzie, will be interviewing competitive shooters, hunters, fishermen, archers, entrepreneurs, and outdoorsmen. Come learn with me as I interview people from all walks of life, in different disciplines, all across the world, from novices to professionals of all ages. No matter what, everyone has something they can teach you. So come join me on the journey. Hey everyone, on this week's podcast, I have Adam Jazeski. He is a firearms, firearms instructor, a full-time fire department, a reserve deputy, doing all the things and still shooting as many matches as I have, which is pretty impressive. So how are you today, Adam? I'm doing good, sitting here on duty, so trying to fit everything in and trying to make it all happen. So that's my so, focus, pushing forward. I love it. Is this your office? This is my bunk room, so this is my, my home when I'm away from home. I like the targets in the background. I just saw that. Yeah, I got a dry fire wherever I can get it in. <laughs> that is awesome. So, you know, I actually wanted to talk. So I don't remember actually how we met. Was it just social media and then into a match or match first? Uh, honestly, I want to say the first time I think I remember coming across you personally at a match was the first time we met. And you were actually talking with Andrew, my younger brother. And I want to say it was national two years ago. I think you were was- talking to him about the Clemson Action Shooting Club. Yeah, it was a yeah, it was a while ago because I didn't remember when I followed you if that was that point in time or after. Okay. Yeah, I think that was it because I was just in the conversation and talking about stuff, and yeah, I think that was that was the first time I think we ran across each other from there. <laughs> I love it, and so we've been following each other across the country now. So, <laughs> how many matches have you shot? It's May, by the way, when we're recording this. So, how many have you shot so far? Well, I think between like Area Six World Speed Shoot and then Low Cap Nationals, all three of those majors, we all at the same matches there. South Carolina too, right? South Carolina on top of that one. Yep. So all four of those. All four of those. Are you at two gun? I am not. I couldn't get a slot and find the time off with everything, but I'm looking okay. to probably try and work for carry office coming up next. So well, I'll be there. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah, oh man. So yeah, and let's dive into the IBPA still too. So oh that's right. What division do you shoot for that? Uh back and forth between um Stock pistol, stock service pistol, carry optics, um, and then compact carry pistol. Cool. So I don't actually have a lot of people that I know that shoot IDPA. Can you talk a little bit about like those divisions and what that is all about? Uh, a little bit. for rules with IDPA. Yeah. Um, I like it now that they've added the fault lines and stuff like that. So it kind of working on a little bit of the accuracy side. I would say down zero versus the USPSA target alpha. Um, biggest thing with IDPA is it's all for that time scoring. So time plus. So if you're not accurate at all in IDPA, that really, really hurts. Hmm. So okay. trying to tie that in with USPSA shoot in the same way. That's so cool. So what's your stock service pistol and all of those like division? What do you shoot for carry optics and stuff? Stock service pistol is pretty much as close as you can get to production. So I'm running okay. my Walther the Q5 steel frame. Um, okay. The compact carry pistol, I'm running um, back and forth between a Glock 19 and the PP, what is it? PP you, I think it is the PBQ. other version of the Walters, yeah. Yes. Um, and then carry optics, carry optics, the 34 when I went around that, or trying to bump up the Q5 with the red dot on that. Ooh, okay. Do you carry like in the waistband or out waist, outside the waistband for those? Uh, everything for that is still outside the waistband. They won't allow inside for really or anything like started. It's outside with the cover garment. So you have your gun holster outside the waistband and uh, mag pouch two mag pouches so three magazines is all you need there to get into IDPA cool no I did want to do that one day I didn't realize that 
that's surprising they don't do in the waist man but okay <laughs> you can i mean but it's not going to be appendix it's strong side hips and it comes back to their side everything is based off of the rules and safety and that kind of stuff yeah so, yeah that makes sense um so yeah no, I, inside there i mean but it's just not on the front for appendix they're all strong sides okay interesting yes yeah, so some of the holsters i have wouldn't work <laughs> um so tell me a little bit okay I know a little bit about your background myself actually um so tell me a little bit about how you even got into the competition shooting world like was it a video was it a friend like what happened so my actual interest was sparked from a fellow firefighter here at Ferris Island with me in the time um probably about seven eight years ago um he was talking about shooting a clock shooting sports foundation one of the GSSF matches and I'm like, eh, no real, I, I like firearm stuff, but I wasn't really into that. I like going to the range and shoot. Um, but he pushed me into going to a local one at Palmetto Gun Club in Somerville, Charleston area, about an hour drive from me here in Beaufort. Um, and ever since then, that just, that spark has grown to a wildfire and it's just been something I can't put down or get away from. Um, and I kind of keep going a little bit now on top of that. He passed away from cancer. So having that thought of him being the one to start me off in it, kind of pushing me along with it also so. that's amazing that's a good story you know actually that was my first match I ever shot was the GSSF match <laughs> good little thing to start with but the problem yeah. is without a Glock firearm that's the only way to get into it there's not much you can do to it in that <laughs> actual shooting sport itself and then they bump you to open and all the other fun stuff so oh yeah once you start oh, yeah. tweaking with the gun it kind of takes away from the GSSF side exactly exactly but you're right it got me into it and then it spawned from there <laughs> just yep. wildfire um okay so your brother competes right so he started the clemson action shooting club i got him started right before in high school started in that and then he kept growing with it in college um so he's got to the point he hasn't shot any this year because he's out working on his own outside of college and stuff but he got to the point there where he was driving me crazy because <laughs> him being my student starting off with he ended up surpassing me and beating me and competing on that side so it's frustrating because knowing where he started from to where he was, but mm -hmm. again, that kept me going and pushing forward myself too. So if you taught him, that's a reflection of leadership, right? It is, but it's kind of a, a gut check for feeling too. And <laughs> you know, you started with him and he's beating this. So. Yeah. Who's more competitive? Makes me get better. Uh, we're all whole families, very competitive. And that's part <laughs> of the whole thing with shooting is being competitive on that side. So we talk trash on the range to each other. We mean good things, but it, it pushes us to go harder. I'm sure. I'm sure. So, I mean, that's fun though, to have family with you. And, um, how does the rest of your family, you know, support your, your passion, your hobby? I mean, being on the road is not easy. <laughs> I got to give that to my wife. 100%. I mean, without her, there's no way I could do anything that I do between my professional, my hobby and careers, anything that you want to say with that side. Um, my duty here at the fire department, I'm here for two days. Um, so I don't get to leave. I'm stuck here for two whole days. So I don't get to see him on that side. And then on top of that, when I'm outside of here, teaching, riding with the sheriff's department, and then going to matches where I'm gone for three, four, five days at a time on top of that. So without their support, there's no way I'd be able to, to be able to focus on what I enjoy doing. I do feel bad sometimes about it, but they're getting into it with me and moving forward with it. It's a fun family hobby with it also. So getting them to tie into it, get out with them. I'm enjoying the hobbies, building it into them also the same way yeah yeah that's awesome so i mean and you, you have kids right i have two daughters yep yeah are they shooting too well i built my 11 year old the 1022 to start and steal challenge with me um and she shot a couple local matches and stuff like that but 
now she's at the teenage years, starting that preteen stuff and moving forward. And so she doesn't want to want to do it anymore. Um, my younger one being six now, she has a little 22, not hers, we use it as a class gun, but she started shooting with it and she called it her gun. So anytime anyone talks about using her gun, I think with that side of her excitement and just getting out being with me, she's going to be my little shooter. I love it. I love it. How did you teach them like firearm safety and respecting the firearm? Six is still a pretty young age. Well, the biggest thing, even in the adult and it's in later years and everything for learning is the fundamentals. I mean, you have to start with the four cardinal safety rules and then establishing the five fundamentals of marksmanship. Um, the biggest thing I talk about in class, the same way to anyone else, is I would never feel comfortable going out to the range unless somebody understood and could abide by the four cardinal safety rules. Yeah. So my yeah. six-year-old can talk to me about it. She understands. Does she say it exactly right? No, but her understanding of how to abide by and use them is there. And um, Starting with her was with the dirt pistol. Same thing I use here at work since I can't have a real firearm. There's no way to have an accident with it, but it's learning those basics and showing that comfort or familiarity with abiding by those rules at all times. So I would say if you don't have a cert pistol, a BB gun would work the same way. So working at a BB gun and going out there and abiding by it, talking with, and knowing, hey, treat it as loaded, keep it pointed in a safe direction, keep your finger off the trigger, and know your target and surroundings where everything's going to start from. So. Yep. Yeah. Even when I teach, uh, the rubber guns, those are still real guns, right? Cause if you form bad habits there, it's really easy to do it with a loaded one, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's easy. It's like they say, it's hard to break a bad habit. So someone who has them, it's hard to break them of that. And that's just complacency and almost a point of ignorance of not realizing too. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'd rather have a student that's brand new. I hate the ones that are like, I've shot forever. I'm like, crap, we've got some habits <laughs> to go through today. Sorry, no. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we can make a whole podcast just from talking about inconsistencies or issues with students in class. It's very interesting to see the ones who tend to be more of the issues or problem child in class than the ones you don't think you're going to be to start with. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get into that because I actually do want to talk about a little bit of that. And the one thing I want to mention too is how surprising is it, or maybe not even that your six-year-old probably knows more than most adults. They, she probably respects it more. And even your oldest, like, it's crazy. Well, and I think it comes down from being the role model in that side. If you didn't have someone around you that had that same desire, respect, and understanding of it to begin with, then how do you get those values instilled also? Um, someone who kind of takes it lackadaisically that doesn't have a care really about it, then that's what someone else is going to pick up off of that also. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you shoot a lot of disciplines, a lot of visions. I want to break down each into their own little segment because uh, you've given me advice that I don't listen to still in Steel Challenge. <laughs> Let's start with Steel Challenge. So what divisions, what are your favorite? And tell me a little bit about shooting Steel Challenge. Okay. Um, so Steel Challenge, I like. Um, it's one of the first things I jumped into after GSSF because mm -hmm. there wasn't any movement. It was the same thing moving from GSSF to Steel Challenge. Um, and I like the fact with Steel Challenge, you can use 22 firearms. So mm -hmm. 22 pistols, 22 rifles. If you have an iron sight, the red dot. So there's divisions for all those. Um, and with the basic principle of Steel Challenge is you're running or shooting a stage, five targets for five strings. So there's one target that's marked as a stop plate. So you can shoot the other four in any order you want. Then you shoot the stop plate last. However long it takes you to do that is your string time, or that time for that one run. And you do that for a consistent four strings or five total. So your slowest is dropped out. Your other four are added together. And that is your stage time. 
So it doesn't, it's not very hard to understand. And it's fun to shoot because you get that positive feedback. As soon as you press that trigger, you or negative. Or negative. Or negative. <laughs> If you got to have a whole bunch, you should never have to reload the gun in a steel challenge stage, but it does happen. Some people do that. It does. It does. Oh my gosh. So what's your advice about targets and steel challenge that you tell me every stage? <laughs> one for one. That is going to be the fastest time, no matter what. I know it's the same advice I have to tell myself, but one for one is always going to be the fastest. There's nothing <sighs> else that can do any different than that. <laughs> I mean, friction, maybe some other people out there. So, I mean, we know some other people that would probably be a lot faster even with makeup. They are obviously right now, but they would be the fastest still, even one for one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a lot of people listening probably don't know. What are the age groups right now kicking butt and still challenge? How old are they? <laughs> All the junior shooters. I mean, the only thing that sucks I hate with when we go to CMP, it has to be 10 or older because there'd probably be some younger ones that might be out there for people just about the same, but they're all preteens and teenagers that are out there kicking all the adult butt every time. So embarrassing. And they're still breaking records. That's what blows my mind. Continually dropping. Yeah, yeah. Never going to catch up to that. But okay, switching gears. So what was after Steel Challenge? IDPA or USPSA? Uh, so being the under the same umbrella for the rules per se for divisions, equipment, it was USPSA moving into because they're already paid and they're already a member in that organization. Right. So getting outside of the static shooting and moving into the more dynamic and movement side, I moved into USPSA um, just because it's a different side. I mean, same gun you can have for the center fire division and then running over and moving over into the actual dynamic on the range side, being able to move with the gun. Uh, keeping with the production is what I started in with that also, and then moving over to try and get a little faster with the red dot. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, production for all of you that know is when you need to count rounds. Um, so take a high cap shooter like Kenzie or a three gun shooter like Kenzie and stick her into a USPSA low cap nationals. Woof. <laughs> Uh, and I liked it because it, it works on that side of having to do those reloads and so you don't have the high cap magazine, yeah. um, but it yeah. is a little bit more gear intensive, a little bit more on the thought process with it and everything else too. And I like the game because of that. They make yeah. it a little bit more challenging. So. Yeah, absolutely. How, how does that, um, or how's that community a little bit different from Steel Challenge Group? Um, I think any of them. I mean, yes, we're under the same organization per se, but there's different views for everyone. I mean, I get it the most when you go from USPSA to IDPA, um, but you do see occasionally some of the same people, but the majority of them will kind of stick to one game and kind of play with that. So <laughs> just the difference is, I mean, I kind of think that when I talk about it, Steel Challenge is kind of like drag racing with a gun, where you talk about um, USPSA is more of like a NASCAR or cross country or something, where it's just a different thought, but a game still playing it with the with that tool so. oh it's definitely drag race that's a good actually analogy for that never thought about that <laughs> yeah. i like it okay and then yeah and then idpa so what if you had to pick one or like what's your favorite or favorite type of stage or um between all three of the divisions all three of the organizations yeah oh, you put me on the spot with that one i mean i like them all for their own little reasons <laughs> i mean i think challenge i can enjoy more with the family and stuff like that but i like the the mental just the, the hard part of uspsa of trying to figure out and break down a stage and do mm -hmm. it competitively to be within the appropriate hit factor um 
And then now with IDPA, since they added the fault lines, you can kind of almost play it the same way as USPSA, but if you're not accurate, then that's what's going to hurt you the most in that. Yeah. So all of it really sharpens your skills. So do you think that makes like a shooter more well-rounded when they try like all of these and can prove themselves kind of on all of them? Well, we haven't even hit on the tactical side. I mean, cause you got the tactical Timmy's per se, or the tactical people that don't even play the game, but think that a game's going to cost your life. Mm-hmm. I think in general, a well-rounded shooter should be someone who can be thrown into any different arena and be able to not obviously be at the very top of the level because that takes other skills with that, but should be competitive. I mean, should be somewhere around there, definitely over middle of the pack per se. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that any of them are going to harm you at all. Not at, There's no way that can be because you're sharpening your own fundamentals. You're improving your mindset with it for being able to be comfortable quickly running the gun and accurately running the gun is in time. So I don't see how it can ever harm you at all. Like people try and say, but you have those mindsets for everyone. The tactical guys don't want to play games. The game guys don't want to do anything tactical. That's just not my, I think anything that I can do with time behind the gun is only going to get better. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I'm ever going to be a top level competitor, but I'm going to shoot them all because I love them all. And I can't like, how do people just choose one gun? And why is that one gun production? There's so many better guns out there. <laughs> well, I like, so the reason I stuck with production part of that for me is coming back to the concealed carry side, being oh. the instructor and teaching. <laughs> Running iron sights is, is one of the hardest things to do. I mean, that continual battle of what do I need to look at, the patience it takes and everything with that. Um, I think running a red dot makes you faster, but going back to iron sights is mm. where you're not comfortable doing it. There's no way So carrying that for law enforcement side for duty use and then for self-defense I, I had to feel like I was more comfortable running the iron site so that's what yeah. kind of kept me stuck in production as much as it has I like that I like that so was there like a, a, a big learning curve when you started competing or do you feel like your background kind of helped or um well I could say for me I don't think I started in D class when I got into USPSA I was D class my very first was at South Carolina State in D class production at the time. Um, so and people don't know there, what the, the classes are, by the way. Do you want to explain the classes? Okay. So D class is your entry, your very start for USPSA uh, field challenge. So D class is what you come in with nothing at all. You're going to see classified D class. So you run classifiers or match performance that gives you that basic basic percentage of where you stack up. So D class is the one say the lowest, but it's the start. Yeah. And then so you move up D. C, B, A, all based off of percentage. So how you shoot for, for a classifier stage or a major match. And then you move into master and grandmaster being the top of the tier, the top best professional or best shooters that are out there. So right now from D, I've made it to B and I'm stuck in B class. So again, middle of the pack, trying to get out of that. <laughs> so you really didn't have a learning curve. I just, I wanted you to explain the tiers for people like, you know, that maybe don't know. <laughs> yeah. No matter what, I mean, and that's just to make sure that you're not out there feeling like you're competing against that top guy that's the paid professional shooter that does it every day. Yes, we all want to be there, but it makes it to the realistic point where I'm only going to be competing against someone of my like skill set. Yeah. Yeah. And how important is it to like compete against yourself first? I know you want to compete against your brother and other people, right? But how important is that, you know? (laughs) Uh, That's when my wife gets frustrated with me because even when I do good, there's always critique. Um, I'm always, even when I teach class, I'm, I'm never going to claim to be an expert. 
I'm always trying to get better. I'm always trying to improve. And obviously being in the middle, that's where I'm at, trying to get better, trying to improve. So there's always critiquing. There's always some way to say that I can do something different to get better at it. Um, I think those who say that they're experts or feel that they've met a certain level are doomed to fail. Yeah. When you're done learning, then what else are you going to do? You're all you're, you're going to be downhill from that point. Yeah, uh, I'm always going to be striving to achieve, striving to achieve to better or get better with it. I love it. How did you move up from from D to B? Was there a training regimen? Was it that dry fire in the background? <laughs> um, well. Dry fire, I didn't really understand, obviously, starting out without having any physical training at all. Everything that I started was from my own being self-taught. So getting from that point of starting to take classes, learning about dry fire and moving through, I would say, I mean, the biggest point is the knowledge that you want to gain. So you got to have drive to be able to do it. So no matter what you do, if you're not willing to put the time in to get the improvement from it, it doesn't matter. You can sit here all day long and talk about stuff, but it's actually putting it to effect and so my first class that I actually took was an entry level to USPSA in 2017. Um, so from that point is what opened my eyes to the actual, hey, I got to get out and train with somebody else to get better too. So that was with Jesse and KC actually in North Carolina. Oh, so cool. Bill actually cool. was the one who actually talked me into doing that. So. Oh, neat. Oh, that's awesome. And, and for those who don't know, they are at the top of their game now, um, <laughs> kicking butt. They're really good to learn from. And, and even just watching the pros shoot, you can learn a lot. So if you're not ready to yet compete or maybe you don't have guns and gear, just going out and watching them, like you'll learn a lot. Oh yeah, definitely. You'll pick up on stuff that, like you said, that you didn't even think of there's, without seeing somebody else do it. And there's nothing else you can, you can go from there. So not having to take a class, which is obviously going to be the best, but just being open to watching and evaluating someone else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you um do you train for competitions or do you have a practice? I know you have so much in your life right now. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, obviously, like I said, I can't be someone that's going to say something and not do it myself. That's, that's a hypocrite on that side. So for me, anything I talk about, I try and practice to do myself. My fire is a big thing. Obviously, I can't have a gun here at work, so I have a cert pistol. I dry fire 30, 40, 30 to 45 minutes, depending on what skill I'm working on for that time. Every time I'm here at the fire station, so it works out about four or five times a week. And then I plan in one to two live fire sessions a week on top of that. Wow. So, and majors. Huh. Yeah. Match time, those are on the weekends. So weekends are normally I try and have a downtime or off time um, because I know matches are going to be on Saturdays or Sundays, but it just depends on where I'm at and what's actually happening with that. Cool. And your cert pistol, it has the, the actual magazine that comes out of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I have a green one just so that way I don't get in trouble at work with having <laughs> anything like I said. So it is a green Glock cert pistol. So weighted, everything's the same. So I ended up changing out to real fiber optic front sight and oh, real cool. metal rear sight. So that way I could actually have a good sight alignment, good sight picture as if I would normal gun. So. Wow. I just learned something. I didn't even realize you could change those sites. So there you go. I knew I learned something. <laughs> it's fantastic. So it doesn't hold great, but it gives me the same visual that I would have for running my normal, my normal iron sight. A blacked out rear and then a fiber front. Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh my goodness. Cool. Um, what I wanted to go back to a little bit was the instructing too. And then again, we could have an hour, 12 hours, probably 12 hours would cover it. No. Um, <laughs> so why did you become an instructor and when did you become an instructor? Uh, so I got my basic instructor stuff that I teach is concealed carry class for South Carolina. Um, and I got into that in 2014 and that was 
off of the interaction I had as a student to start with. I was not very happy with how my class was taught, the misinformation that was given, and the consensus that was taken from that was the students all were not very happy. They were in it to get their concealed carry permit, but they didn't feel like they were getting what they needed out of the class. Yes, they got their permit, they got the basics, but the basics isn't what you just wanted to. You gotta go above and beyond that and gives that person, even if they're not really 100% gonna understand it, they gotta be exposed to the material that potentially can either save their life or life or cost them their life. Yep. So without giving them exposure, you're doing them a disservice. So that's what pushed me to, into becoming an instructor myself. I love it. And that's it. just for the concealed carry side. With everything, I want to offer more classes, but that's more time. But Where do you have the time? It's just teaching that class. And then I, I do one-on-one instruction because I got to be able to help other people too outside of that. So anything outside of teaching for the class is just one-on-one education on the range. Nice. Nice. Cool. Yeah. I mean, um, one of the things that surprises me, well, maybe not, but when I lived in Florida for the concealed carry, the statute said that you had a fire live fire in front of an instructor. That was it. Credentials were like NRA or law enforcement or what have you. So you go to a gun show or the, um, like the fairgrounds or whatever, and live fire again, satisfies this. They would shoot a 22 suppress into a wall, into a water bucket, one shot, check the box. And these instructors would sign off on these people. That's what blows my mind is that you're attached to that person when they don't know what the hell they're doing. And then they put a real gun on. How is that right? Um, and then sometimes it frustrates me too. when I get it, but when people come and they qualify with a 22, right. Or they bring a 22. I'm like, that's not really preparing you. I'm glad you're there, but. Well, in just relating off of what I talk about in my classes, yes, I will allow people to qualify with a 22, but I express it without any doubt that there's no justification for carrying a 22 for self-defense. Yeah. 22s, I know, and we know we're going to malfunction. It's just based off the ammunition they're going to have. So I like it as a training aid because now they're going to have to deal with a malfunction and they're going to have to deal with a malfunction on the clock and it's cheaper to do it. But the stress of me out there watching them for the qualification and them trying to fumble through making sure they're doing it safely to get that gun back up into use, they're like, oh crap. So they get a double amount of training that not everyone else per se is getting because of their choice and firearm to use for that qualification. Absolutely. So we express it, but it's the same fundamentals are applied. I mean, the cert pistol doesn't go bang, but it's still working on fundamentals. So if I can apply those fundamentals appropriately and be able to demonstrate that and be able to work those up into something bigger, then it's going to be the same mindset with it also. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and the other thing too, like... <laughs> you do a great job just because your background's there too, meaning you've got the firefighter experience, the, the competitive um, aspect. How important too is it about like knowing medical response when you're your first responder? Um, medical, I mean, obviously we're dealing with something that potentially can take somebody's life. So you got to have some understanding with it. No matter where you are on the range, somebody has to be there that if something bad happened for that potential situation. So I think being exposed to a little bit more on the medical side of seeing what can actually happen um, helps on that for me. But there has to be somebody there with a minimum of some BLS basic life support and a tourniquet for a minimum. Yeah. Um, just because it only takes a split second for that situation to turn to that potential of deadly. So um, having that, I, I can't express it enough as people having to get that knowledge and seek that out. So learning the firearm is one thing, but learning how to you put holes in somebody, you need to learn how to plug holes in somebody. Simple way to put it. Um, yeah. And it's not for that person, it's for you. It's your safety. So 
Yeah. What do you carry with you? Do you have like med bag and tourniquet and all of that? I don't carry it with me personally. I mean, yeah, it's, it's probably a downside, but I have quick access to it. Yeah. You know, I always have a tourniquet, even on my gear for my training belt. It's there because I have it. It's a tourniquet and scissors. belt that I have. Yep. Promise you. Yep. So, yep. Got cool. Can't treat what you can't see. I like it. I like it. See, that's pretty neat. Um, I've got one on my ELS attachment. And how important is it to, to have tourniquets that are unopened or unused and then have a training tourniquet to actually use, learn how to use it? <laughs> um, well, you got to look at your equipment. I mean, you can't just hold stuff and expect it to work when you need it without inspecting it to be sure. But we can't leave them in the plastic bags either, though, because yeah. that plastic bag, if you end up getting in that situation with that traumatic event, there's yeah. blood everywhere. And blood and gloves trying to open a plastic bag Mm-mm. are not going to work either so we got to open them and we got to train with it but we can't tear it apart either so i would say we need to use that tourniquet a couple times be comfortable with it and then if you have one probably need a couple of them and just kind of work through them one to use for training after we're comfortable with knowing how to use it and then keep applying it and keep using it it's something that's a perishable skill so if you don't use it just like handling the gun if you don't do it in quite a bit of time then that one time you need it might be the time you're fumbling through it yep completely forgot or oh crap i don't remember exactly yeah tourniquet girls are good to add in with dry fire they come the same way are there organizations that civilians can look up to take some of these classes or where they maybe find some resources um so locally i mean basic life support class right now so bls anyone first responder can take that obviously but cpr and first aid are a start and they're adding that with locally we have a stop the bleed class um for the Beaufort county area they have a Jacobs kit that they're actually using in schools now. So it's a tourniquet, it's basic life support, some bandaging, splinting, that kind of stuff that they're in every single school within Beaufort County now. Wow. Uh, and they're teaching that to the teachers and everything else on how to appropriately use those tools. Yeah, because I think a lot of people don't realize how close to home things are, right? Well, just like you said, it's only a split second that can mean the difference of life or death in those situations. So having the tools there and knowing how to use the tools are going to be the thing that's going to prevent or stop potential loss of life. So. Yeah, 100%. I actually had a student this past weekend that was in a school shooting as a kid in Oregon or something up there. I was like, holy cow, you know, one in six students, right? Might happen in your lifetime. Um, that's the heavy stuff, but I wanted to touch on that because I think it's really important. Um, what's some of the best classes? Oh, I was going to say, it's, it's- even without the tourniquet, though, you don't really have to take a class. I mean, YouTube, there's yeah. a lot of different stuff that you can look up on there. If you don't have the means to actually physically go take a class, buy a tourniquet for 20, 30 bucks and watch the video on YouTube. It's not really hard. It's just understanding the appropriate way to do it. I'm not going to watch a video for a tourniquet from some guy I have no idea, but American Red Cross or the company who designed or makes a tourniquet for cat tourniquets, you can look up their videos. They're out there. Yeah. Or maybe ask military, ask a first responder. I'm sure one of us, you know, someone's going to have a friend in some of that aspect that are out there. Yeah. So you, okay. You took a lot of classes. Yes. The concealed carry permit stuff, but have you taken other classes? Like you said, um, learning from Casey and Jesse, you know, what's been the best experience that you've had? So the two most, the two, the most, but the two classes that have stuck with me, um, throughout everything. Most recent one was taking J.J. Ricardo's class. Um, I did that, and being able to see him as an instructor and a shooter has been awesome. Uh, the way he's able to relate the knowledge to you as a student and help you see and achieve that has been great. Um, but trying to apply it, again, is something different. you got to put the time in with it. So that's where I'm at with that one. 
Um, so if you ever have a chance to train with, train with JJ, I would, I would not turn that down at all. Um, but then the mental game is a whole other side for me. Um, with Steve Anderson, I've been through his class twice. I've actually coached him both times to have that class here in Savannah. Um, and that is a whole other side of being able to compete and think about it outside of on the range, preparing mentally. Um, he's been a, a great help to figure out that way and to work through that process. Too. Cool. So what is your mental game? What do you work on? So, Anal strap men viz. That's what he says. So analyze, strategize, memorize, visualize. You've got to okay. be able to do it. Anal strap men viz. So that's for your stage plan. But um, with the mental game, if you don't feel like you're worthy of competing where you are, then you're not going to win. There's no way you can be able to, to do that. So you got to put the work in and you got to feel like you deserve to be there. So that's a lot of time outside of competing. Um, you can show up at the range to a match all day long, but if you don't practice, then you're not going to feel like you deserve to win. Um, and if you don't feel like you're going to win, even though you try and sell yourself, it's never going to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. You can't have that. Some, oh, excuse me. Subconscious working against you. <laughs> yeah. Subconscious. Yeah. That's why we dry fire everything to the subconscious where we're not physically thinking about it. We're just reacting to it. We already know that we can do it. So yeah. it has to be put in and dry fire and live fire outside of match day. Absolutely. How important is it too to maybe like not think about who your arch enemy or your, you know, the person you're competing against, how important is it to forget about what they're doing? <laughs> well, that's different when my brother's there and when my brother's not, because that's exactly what happens to me. We try to compete, go back and forth. Um, yeah, I mean, you can only perform to your performance for the day. I mean, but that's the battle that we play with the game is, hey, everyone's here. Oh, man, they just been awesome. Now I got to go behind them. I watched that guy burn the stage down. I'm going to go try to do the same thing. Well, that person who just burned the stage down was a master or grandmaster. I'm a B-class shooter their view of what they could do is not the same that I can do. So yeah. that's, that's the game. <laughs> that's the beast that we play with. So. And I mean, if you look um, at local yeah, nationals, I was going to say low cap nationals, how many people had really bad issues and had zeroed stages like at the pro level? Yeah. There's quite a few. There's a few. So, and that's, that's the, that's the thing I'm still striving, striving to achieve myself. And that's the issue where I come back to is that speed demon, that battle of speed and accuracy in USPSA. That's what makes it such a fun game is trying to figure that out and how do you tackle it yourself. Um, yeah. but that's the hard part for me. That's where I'm kind of feel like I'm really stuck in the B class side is I can be as accurate as all get out. I, I shot nationals with only two mics, um, but my, my stage times were very slow. So <laughs> I, my goal going into nationals was to be top 10. Um, I achieved it right at 10th for B class, but I was not competitive because of my speed. Well, yeah. USPSA is a hit factor scoring. So if the speed's not there, then your hit factor's lower. So I told myself after it, hey, I know I can hit target. Now I got to get faster with it. Yeah, yeah. Do you read too? Do you have stuff that you read for that? Um, I'm working on some of the Ben Stoger books. Obviously, he's got the most material out there. Um, yeah. Even going back to... Uh, the stuff that Steve's put out for the mental game, so working on the dry fire. Um, between those two, those are those are my, my bread and butter that I fall back to reading. I'm um, trying to get into some of the Lanny Basham. Uh, obviously, that's where Steve learned most of his stuff starting from. Um, but I'm not a big time reader. That's my downside. Um, you don't have time. So I'm, trying him, I'm trying to find him an audiobook or something like that. So. Yeah, so say if anything, if you're reading, you're probably needing sleep, but audiobook would help. <laughs> yeah, I think they're there. So so you got to do it. So I'm making it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Make time. Oh my gosh. And I think I've had, I've had so many shooters on that have already said, yeah, Lanny Basham and Steve Anderson. It's, it's, 
if you're not listening, those are the books to read. <laughs> you know, there, there are so few, which kind of sucks too. I mean, the community is, is so small, um, but there is a lot of knowledge there. And I mean, I now know like Christian Saylor is doing breakdown videos. Have you watched any of those on his YouTube channel? Uh, I've seen some of them, but no, I haven't got on there. Um, Christian and open I mean, Yeah, probably be great, but I'm trying to get with style and some of those other guys in production. That's, that's yeah. my thing. So, yeah. Um, I want to get limited, in the though, one of those. Yeah. Yeah. He did. He, well, he's just a beast when it comes to anything. You put a gun in his hand. And, and <laughs> he's that's why I like JJ's class, though, too, because JJ has shot production. He is a production shooter and working with that side, too. Um, between JJ and Sal, um, trying to work with those or talk to those guys, that's where I'm trying to get with to, to figure out how I can get out of my slump. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then I got to squad with Nils. That was a lot of fun watching him shoot, man. Makes it look so easy. <sighs> yeah. Well, I was there to watch that whole debacle with JJ and the, the popper. <laughs> and after that. Yeah. The popper. That was, yeah. That yeah. Was they awesome. tightened those down when I was on the, on the wind was up and I was like, mm, I hope someone loosens them later. <laughs> I'm just ha happy. We shot that portion on day one. That was our very first open side for there. Oh, that was the last day for us. Um, do you still get nervous when you go to matches? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that's part of the fun side to it is the unknown. What's going to happen in dealing with that? I mean, I think that's adrenaline junkie. That's why I'm in the, the career field I'm in also, is I like that feeling of not knowing and trying to trying to work with that and get the outcome that I want to. So, yeah, butterflies happen no matter what. And, <laughs> but I enjoy it. It's fun. Love it. And then, okay, you're talking about stage planning. So you do walkthroughs the day before. Tell me like what you're looking for at, um, on each stage. Um, oh, that goes back to that battle for me too. I mean, that's trying to figure out exactly. Um, I hear a lot of people say that put a lot of emphasis in stage planning that we shouldn't do. Um, you have to talk about the flow of the stage. Everyone's probably going to shoot the stage just about the same way, but you got to be able to break it down to know what's going to be beneficial to you. Yep. Um, so I ended up having the wrong mindset. Like I said, at nationals, I achieved what I wanted to of knowing I could hit every target, but I had a vision for that stage. I was going to come in on the hardest target and leave on the end because I know part of my issues, um, were pulling off of target. Hmm. So I would come in and be able to shoot fast, but I wouldn't be able to slow down. So uh -huh. I was in the vision that I was going to start slow and speed up. So that way I could feel like I could hit everything. It was good, but it cost me a lot of time. Yeah. So, and I guess it's just going back and knowing the where you are, where you stand, and what you can successfully do. Should I have gone one for one for all those steals? Uh, I don't. USPSA is not going to be the same. <laughs> That's where it comes back to playing a different game. So definitely <laughs> steal talent. So I know. So when I bad. dropped one. Was it the uh, what eleven? I think it was. Or you had the steal and you had to drop the game with the yes. zebra and then it went back to the headshot. Yes. Ooh, that was 13. 13. I think it was unlucky 13. Didn't they make that? Uh, mm -hmm. That was one of my mics right there. That was one of them that did it. Yeah. Yeah. I almost want to just go and like start an A and I should just run a B and done it like slow, but I feel like I would have had it better than most people <laughs> doing that. <laughs> Even Not though I hit good steal, but at moving target, I just. Yep, not there yet. I had certain time to do it, and it, it was gone before I could get it. It's gone. <laughs> so, okay, um, you're maybe, like, in the hole or in the deep hole, right? What's going through your mind then, and what's going through your mind when you are the shooter? Um, 
so prior to, like you said, stage planning, I know how I'm going to run the stage. Give it the best plan? Probably not, but I've already decided that's how I'm going to run it. So that's where that mental side comes into. Analyze, strategize, memorize, visualize. So that point, I've already started to memorize my stage. This is how I'm going to run it. This is I know I feel successful doing so. So I repeat it, close my eyes, and completely run through it. Um, everyone's going to have a little bit different, but as Steve says, if you can't close your eyes and know exactly what you're going to do, then you haven't memorized it enough. So until I get to that point, I'm not going to feel comfortable running that stage. So until I can close my eyes and know exactly how I'm going to do it, then that's when I know I'm ready to run that. So, I like it. Is it the best? Probably not, but it's going to give me the best outcome for that stage. I feel. But it's super important to not change it like a second or the shooter yeah. before you. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. Oh crap, they burned it down again. I'm gonna do that. You know, not if you haven't planned it. Not if that wasn't your stage to start with or your mindset. Yeah, hundred percent. Or the worst thing you do, and I do tell people this, is just like watching that person before you or watching a friend shoot it, because then it'll booger up your plan. You're like, oh, I can't be watching this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't I can't remember who actually said it, but so being on deck, ready to go, you hear the timer, close your eyes, visualize, running through that stage. Um but when you're closing your eyes and you're running the stage, one of the good things you're going to feel with doing that is you're always going to be done before they are. Mm-hmm. So you're feeling like you're doing a lot faster. Right. So that right. kind of gives you a good little pro moving in. Well, hey, close my eyes. I didn't see exactly what they did, but oh, they're on their last shot. I've already been done for quite a few seconds. Yeah. So yeah. It's like a that. good feeling to say, well, hey, I feel like, hey, I'm going to do better at it just off of knowing that you're going to potentially have a faster time. Yeah. And for, for those new shooters, do you want to talk about how you're not counting rounds on the fly, how you're hitting your reloads at spots, you know, as you move? Um, well, see, in JJ's class, he talked about not planning. He said it's just going to happen. Um, hmm. So that's where it's like, it goes back to me trying to work on myself from there, too. Um, I overplan because anytime <laughs> I look at steel, I count for two. So that messes up and potentially oh. could add me another reload for anywhere. Um, but in production, you kind of have to have an idea of where you're going to reload because you only have 10 plus one in the gun. You only have 11 rounds. And a lot of those national stages were 20 plus. So two to three reloads per stage had to be done somewhere. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I should probably take one of his classes so I don't start saying that. <laughs> I guess for me with three gun though, it's like, especially with shotgun, it's like, I have to know where I'm reloading or that I'm, if I'm moving, I'm reloading, I guess, you know, because yeah. Yeah, it's a different game. <laughs> well, in, in production with that, too, I mean, if you're moving from position to p- position, that's time, then you're going to probably end up reloading the gun. Um, but the reload should happen just normally. Um, but it just depends on where the stage is and what that shooter feels comfortable with, too. <laughs> I did know when to reload when I was missing steel a bunch. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and do this standing reload because I know it's going to go click. <laughs> Well, and if that happens, though, too, if you get out of your plan and you reload, then you need to go back to the plan. So you're just going to reload again. Because if you try and plan that in, you have to go to the conscious and the subconscious going through that, then you're completely already lost. Already yep. You just shoot the two oh, or whatever, even if it's one, and then reload again to keep yourself out. Yeah, yeah. Back yeah. to the plan. Back to the plan. And that's what me and Derek kept saying the whole time we were there at Nashville. Stick to the plan. Stick to the plan. Shooting with Derek was fun for that. So the HK shooter. Hell yes. Okay. I was actually, we weren't even going to go into that. So... How awesome is it when you choose like the right squad or you shoot with the right people? Like, how does that make a difference in your match? Oh, definitely. I mean, being able to have people to feed off of and having that positive vibe the whole time for the match is going to be better than someone always talking about the negative. Um, it tends to be when you get around shooters, they always want to talk about the bad stuff that happens. 
all that bad stuff when you talk about it just breeds more bad stuff. Oh, I had a mic here and I had a mic here. I missed a reload here. Well, hey, I've had a great match. All of a sudden, oh, there's a missed reload. Oh, there's a mic. Well, <laughs> you just get it stuck in your head because everyone wants to talk about it. So yeah. having a good squad, I think, definitely helps. And then shooters <laughs> of better skill level than you are, too. And, um, yes, you have fun with some of your friends, but you're never going to also, like you said, be able to see that better shooter or be able to work through those stage plans as they do. And being with some of the higher ups in the competition side, you end up trying to strive to be better with them because, hey, he just ran it 12 seconds and he got a lot of Well, hey, I'm going to want to try to do that same thing too. Pushing outside of your comfort zone a little bit is going to be always better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then that's, I think, the benefit too of, of high cap and low cap and PCC and carry optics is that you all are running the same stage plan or have the same amount of round counts, right? So like when you go to USBSA and you have, you know, Derek normally shoots PCC and you normally shoot pistol. It's really hard to stage plan. Like yours is going to be way different with him with a, you know, 50 round magazine. <laughs> it was funny though, for a low cap, I mean, we're all doing two hands like a regular handgun. For some reason he was had his hands separate every time he was doing his walkthroughs. So I told him, I said, well, you're not running your PCC. You have a handgun, buddy. What are you doing? <laughs> Derek is one of my favorite people's. <laughs> just, yeah. You really didn't yeah. do that. I was just joking. But no, I, I'm giving him that joke all the time. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Okay. So um, we, we were talking about what you do for a living. And I think it's important that people know, like people come from all different backgrounds, right? To shoot. But you're, you're actually kind of, you know, familiar with firearms, I guess. So how is the training different for, you know, law enforcement or first responders? Um, so... On those career sides, on the professional side, it's completely different learning from fire department to law enforcement. Yeah. Um, fire department side, we're kind of a reactive organization. I mean, bad something, bad situation happens, we come to mitigate or solve the problem. Um, but training for us is a mindset that, hey, we have training schedules. We're always doing training. We're here for two days. So mm-hmm. a daily breakdown is we have we have training scheduled. You're going to go, hey, we're going to facilitate this training or do something. So it helps knowing for me for a training schedule and how that works. The law enforcement side, hey, they're more of a proactive service. They're always out doing something. They don't have a lot of free time. So anything that happens on their end for training has to happen after hours or on their own free time. So that's where a lack of that kind of happens on that side because their job title means that they have to always be out doing something. Mm. Um, so having both of those exposures, I think benefits me, but not a lot of people have that opportunity to see both of those sides. Yeah. Do you take them out and, and train together or? Um, we're working on trying to get out there um, and get some of that stuff going, trying to work on potentially having a sheriff's department team. Um, there's a few of them that are out there that are, are actually out shooting, just like the Marine Corps team, the military side. Um, so we're trying to push that a little bit. We'll see That's if it can happen. We're, about halfway there, I would say. That's so much fun. I can't remember what I shot, but it was a, I want to say Orange County, maybe not, but it was a sheriff's outlaw match, two gun match back in, in Florida. And it was such a blast, but they put it on. It was a fundraiser too. And man, to see them come out and shoot too, like there's just a lot of joy when they get to have trigger time because they don't get a lot of it. Absolutely. You would think, I mean, yes, their job description is them being paid to carry a gun. But like I said, their job says they have to be out on patrol and they have to be actively doing stuff. So they don't get the training they absolutely need when it comes to appropriately running that gun to the best of their ability. Can they successfully do it? Absolutely. Just like we said, 
anyone can always get better with more time behind them. hundred percent, hundred percent. So, um, concealed carry, I want to talk about like South Carolina or just concealed carry mindset. You know, how important is it for people to realize that it should be on them? It should be at all times, you know, and they should be still practicing with that firearm. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There, there's no way to get around that. It has to happen there. And then we just ended up passing the new open carry with training act in South Carolina. So moving to potential of a constitutional carry. Um, but training is, is a requirement, whether it be mandated by law or to the aspect of you having to train as an individual to maintain your own proficiency. It doesn't matter if the law says you have to do it or you strive to do it yourself. It still needs to be achieved the same way. Um, so getting out and playing the games that we do only benefit us if you have that exposure with it. But the person who's just carrying the gun for self-defense thinks they're going to be ready to use that gun when that bad situation happens that hasn't picked the gun up since the time they got their concealed carry permit is already doomed to fail. Yeah. Um, that yeah. gun has a greater potential of being used against them in that situation than anything. Yeah. Um, and until, until, until that person can understand that difference, that's going to be the hard side. And that's the, that's the battle that we fight on the concealed carry side is right. yes, you've got your concealed carry permit, but you still need more training. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people think that, hey, I get my permit, I'm done. done. I'm not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. Now you should be held to a higher standard than anyone else of getting out and doing more and understanding what actual tool you have and what it can cause and what needs to be done to successfully carry it with you at all times. Oh, yeah. I mean, and then do you want to talk about like the newbies that you get in the class who, you know, they're fearful of putting one in, in the chamber or they've never oh. even thought of putting it on their body, right? You get the person that comes to the class that, oh, yeah, I've carried a gun, but the gun's never been loaded. So what good is that going to do you? Um, well, I have the gun. Okay, well, now something bad happens, and we're talking about difference of life or death within seconds, and now I'm trying to, to rack the gun or get the round chambered, and, oh, I didn't do it right. Now the round sucks because it didn't go all the way into batteries. Uh, there's many different things that people say, and that's why getting education, proper education, and continuing to expand on that education is something that can't be stressed enough. Yeah. Um, and setting a standard of, and I tell people in class for me, hey, you just qualified with your gun for a 50-round qualification. You need to do this on a monthly basis, a yearly basis, a quarterly basis. It depends on you, but you have to set a standard that you're going to go do this again to make sure that you're not getting any lower than what you already are. Um, and you can tell yourself, all the time to do it, but until you actually do it, it's a, it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had a student who, um, they've never shot their hollow points through their gun. Right. Um, she'd had them in there for like, I want to say three or four years. It'd been a while. It's like, okay, I'm going to recommend something. And it was a Ruger, but I was like, Hey, let's go ahead and just shoot it, you know, and try those hollow points. Those hollow points didn't work for her. So they wouldn't feed. And it was just a feed ramp issue. So I actually had some of mine. She tried those out and it's a little bit, uh, more like a ball shape. So it's really important if you're carrying hollow points and you've never even thought like, Oh, maybe I should fire those through my gun. Yeah. Because when you need it most and you've never, ever, ever, ever tested that kind of ammo, something can go wrong. <laughs> well, and so back to the law enforcement experience side for me is, I don't know if a lot of people understand when law enforcement shoots, normally they carry their duty ammo with them the whole year, right? Yep. Well, qualification. Qualification begins. What ammo do you think that law enforcement officer starts with in his qualification process? They run <laughs> through their duty ammo to start with. So they never carry duty ammo for more than a year. So that way, hey, there's no way that that ammo can have an issue of going bad or anything like that. 
So mm -hmm. same perspective, you're talking about a paid professional. Why not use the same thing on the self-defense general concealed carry side? So yeah. I tell them, hey, once a year, run through your carry ammo. Yes, it can be potentially expensive, but is that expense going to be worth your life? Your life. Absolutely. <laughs> so once a year, at least running through that carry ammo to replace it, make sure it's good to go, and making sure that it actually functions in your firearm. Yeah. Those different types of ammo might not work in every single firearm. Yep. And some are really picky and really finicky. So yeah, that's huge. Um, are you a fan of like a bunch of external safeties when it comes to a thumb safety and a grip safety for carry guns? Well, it depends on the action of the firearm. Obviously for a single action type firearm, meaning something that has a hammer that's carried cock and lock, and that has to have a manual safety. Yeah. If we're talking about a double action only, like a striker fired or something like that, then no, I, trigger safeties like the Glocks, the SIGs, yep. all that kind of stuff are perfectly fine. I don't like an external safety because that's another device on the gun that I think is potentially excessive. Yep. That is a point of failure. Um, but it comes back to training and comfort with the gun. Obviously, yep. someone who's not comfortable running their gun is not going to be comfortable carrying that gun. Mm -hmm. So going out and using it is the benefit that you're going to get with that, too, of having that familiarity and comfort with it. Love it. Um, I actually just did my fingerprints and my lovely mugshot today for my renewal for Florida permit. They issue non-residents, which is great. So I get to actually keep those benefits, but I didn't realize it had been seven years since I'm 21 years old. I've been caring since I turned 21. Stop waiting. Right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, well, it's never going to be a good time. I mean, that's a lot of people. Well, I'm going to wait for this. It's never going to be right. Got to make it happen. Um, same thing with shooting matches. You hear people, well, I'm going to go do it or I'm going to get into it later. It's the same mindset. If you're not going to get into it now and you're not going to make time for it to happen, then you're not going to do it. So if you're thinking about carrying that gun for personal protection, do it. Get on the class. Get into it. Make it happen. Don't keep putting it off. If you're thinking about going to shoot a match, make it happen. Find a time that works for you and go do it. Um, there's no other way to get into it than just putting the effort in and achieving it. Absolutely. Um, do you remember your first like month or two of concealed carrying? Like, What was that experience like just getting used to it? <laughs> um, so I don't remember where I heard the term from, but I'll tell people in class that they're going to end up doing the Walmart walk. So majority of all Walmart don't have any type of exposure to where they deny concealed carry. So you end up, there's always someone in Walmart, no matter what time of day it is. So you put the gun on, you go to Walmart, start walking around and get used to being around it with having a gun on your hip and everyone else being there too. I love that. That just cracks me up. <laughs> And how oblivious are the people of Walmart? <laughs> well, we've seen that. We know the people of Walmart is his own Facebook or which website at the time. So. I can't. I can't. Oh, I love it. Um, all right. Well, besides just the firearm, though, is the other side that a lot of people don't think about. Um, so outside of just generally talking about firearms, firearm is a tool. There's other things that people should have in self-defense to be prepared to deal with this situation. I express this for everyday carry items in my class. So there's four items as a basic recommendation that you must have with you at all times. Obviously, number one is a firearm because that's what we're teaching, still carry and having that firearm. That's your number one to deadly force defensive tool. Mm -hmm. But that is a tool. So there's still three other things that you need with you. Second to that is going to be spare ammunition because we don't know if that gun could ever fail or have a malfunction or we never know how many bad guys there might be in a situation. So spare ammunition is the second part. Third is going to be a secondary defensive tool. Obviously, I go in a situation per se that says I can't have my deadly force firearm, then I still need a way to defend myself or protect myself. So something other than the firearm we need to carry. And if we're in the mindset that two is one, one is none, pocket knife, exactly, pocket knife. 
taser, pepper spray, any of those things can still be used to defend your life with. So you have a redundant system with that. The last one that we're going to express for class that I teach is I have to be able to identify that deadly force threat if I'm going to use my firearm. So how do you identify? You have to have a flashlight. You got to carry a flashlight at all times to be able to identify that use when you talk about using it to start with or justification when you have to go to court to say why you did exactly what you did. Yeah. Yeah. And South Carolina, correct me if I'm wrong. I remember that they're going to do open, but it's for permit carry carriers only. Yes. So we did pass the Open Carry with Training Act. Um, the governor signed it last Monday. I think it's August 15th or 16th okay. uh, when it goes into effect. The law said from the date the governor signs it, there's 90 days for it to be established as law. So Open Carry with Training says anyone with a concealed carry permit now can open carry their firearm. Um, I can't say that I'm ever going to open carry um, because my mindset is that puts me as a target. I do have to open carry when I'm working in an official capacity as law enforcement, but that is a job title. That's what you're doing for that job. But along with carrying that gun, wearing a vest protection. So that way I have something. So I guess if you're going to open carry and wear a vest out in public. All right. Well, that's, that's your prerogative. That's your right. Yeah. But I would say I like the law and the aspect of now I don't have to be previous under South Carolina law concealed. concealed. There was no way for my firearm to accidentally become exposed unless I needed it for self-defense. Now it takes away that, hey, my bend over, my shirt rides up, and my gun becomes exposed, I can get trouble for it. Not when that becomes effective on the 15th or 16th. I can't remember exactly what that 90-day yeah. mark was. Yeah. So, I think it's good in that aspect. We also reduced the number of rounds it takes to qualify from 50 to 25. So someone can oh, go good. buy a box of ammo for their very first gun. Mm -hmm. They have 25 to qualify with, and then 25 to use later on for their own training. So like it's hard to come by, so being able to reduce that. And they also made it effective for someone who didn't have a lot of money to spend to get that firearm concealed carry permit. They've taken away the application fee to sled. So there's no more paying the state for that privilege to carry concealed. You just have to go through a class, whatever the class fees are, or whoever you can get to teach you the class. Instructor signs off on it saying they met the standard and they can apply to sled with no fee from that point on. That's amazing, actually. That's how it should be. <laughs> I agree with the training. I think people should still have to train for sure. But I think that when it's our American right, we shouldn't be having to pay for <laughs> having a permit for America. <laughs> we all understand the Second Amendment, and that's the battle that we fight because I think there should be something. And it's not me speaking as an instructor. It's me saying that, hey, I know the person that's out public carrying the gun has had education. But if we look back to what I said for me becoming an instructor, just because education is received doesn't mean that it's appropriate knowledge also. Yeah. So that's kind of the dilemma that we fight all the time back and forth. Yeah. It's still going to be on that person to make sure that they're receiving the appropriate knowledge they need also. Yeah. I mean, and when I'm out in public, I, I teach people this. If you see a print or you see the open carry right, just because they have it doesn't mean that they did go through any good training. Like Alabama was always, I think, open carry. And I think it was like at 19 as a resident. I know, I think it's Missouri or Minnesota. Missouri, maybe it's 18 years old can carry. So you just don't know. You know, if they just went down, bought a gun, put on their hip, called it a day, or if they actually took a class. Um, and I don't know anyone, I think, in our community, actually, who who competes and shoots and all that, who open carries. Like you said, it's really, it's your personal preference, but your your target, you're asking for that to be to be messed with or to be grabbed. And honestly, probably a lot of people are going to start stopping you and asking you for your permit if it's open. <laughs> so. Well, I know that the laws that they're applying with that, I mean, sled being South Carolina State Law Enforcement Division is going to put out a whole thing for instructors. You have to start adding in classes 
on how to retain the firearm, how to secure the firearm, all that kind of stuff. So I, I get it, but I just for me, it doesn't make good sense um, because I can still conceal carry. If I went to somewhere that says, no, you can't conceal carry, the only option you have is to open carry. Well, then heck yeah, I'm going to open yeah. carry. Yeah. If you're giving me the option to conceal or open, then I'm going to conceal because that still gives me the opportunity to use that firearm in a situation as a surprise tactic and give right. me the upper hand in that defensive situation to start with. Yeah, you know, it's never going to have me pointed out as the target or someone that's going to come to do me harm just because they see I'm carrying a gun. Yeah, they're never going like, to know or should never drop and give me all your you know valuables too, and they'll be like, oh, I want that gun too. It's like, okay, now you're defenseless. <laughs> um, Absolutely. What else was I going to say about that? I think I lost my train of thought. But um, are there any final nuggets that you want to leave people with, or new shooters with, or anybody? Um, starting point's always going to be the four cardinal safety rules i mean that's something that even like you say in class someone who's oh i've shot for all these years but they can't tell you the four cardinal safety rules so never forget those always work on those always 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 keep refreshing on those and make sure everyone who handles firearms uses those um if you're interested in in the south carolina area of low country hit me up on social media look up possess the defense syndicate or go to my website cjdfllc.com um, and I'll be more than happy to get out with anyone and help them start moving forward and get to where they want to get to. Um, yeah. If you're looking just for competition stuff and you want to see videos from the E-Class Shooter and USPSA, IDPA, or Steel Challenge, um, AJEZ, AJEZ153 is my Instagram and Facebook page. He's got great advice if you actually listen to him. <laughs> I got to tell myself. That's what I said. If I say it enough, I'm going to start trusting it to myself and doing it. Right. That's part of the reason I like becoming an instructor too, because the more I repeat it, the more I have to start doing it myself. Yeah, it's sad. I moved up in B class for USBSA with PCC, and then I started out in B class with a steel challenge with PCC. But we'll see how we get to A. Well, I'm GM for rifle stuff and a few pistol stuff and steel challenge, but it's not GM anymore. Not with the, the numbers that those children put up right now. <laughs> I, I wish we would reclassify, but I guess I'm not. <laughs> I'm in the lower end of that number. Um, I feel like if we're changing times and our peak times are much lower and I don't rate that number for classification, I, I shouldn't be rated that. So Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, are there any final uh, Shout Out City sponsors or any guns or gear? Um, that you have? Obviously, for sponsorship-wise, I can't go anything wrong with Hunter's HP Gold. So the best classes. So um, if someone's looking for advice on where to start with shooting, that's the number one thing I'm going to tell them to start with. So good eye and ear protection. So eye protection, Hunter's HP Gold, and then ear protection, Grizzly Ears. Um, grizzly Ears, if you end up going to pick up some, AJ20 to save you on those. Get some nice, good, amplified, that reduced, and also Bluetooth ear protection on those. Um, Lock Grips is one of my personal sponsors also. So you can use AJ10, save some money, check out the new Lock Light. Big old heavy brass weight to put on front of that production gun. Yeah. Um, start tweaking <laughs> the rules and playing in that. And then Nine Line is also one that I can offer a discount code as one of my sponsors or brand ambassadors. Uh, just go to Nine Line website, order in t shirts, anything you want on the website, and use AJS20 will save you 20% for that. I love it. Adam, thanks for being on the show. I adore you and I am enjoying seeing you all across the country in your Jeep and my truck, you know. <laughs> There you go. Well, the gladiator, the gator is, is working on there. There's a few more things I want to do to get it running, but I finally got the winch on there. Everything's set up to start. And it's getting some good gas mileage even with 35 more. 
Awesome. Oh, 35s. You upped me. You beat me. You're cooler. <laughs> I love it. Thanks again. Well, I appreciate it. Everybody. I definitely enjoy it. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Reticle Up podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Follow along on social media at Reticle Up or 3 Gun Kenzie.